Hi, and welcome to the Decoding Life podcast with Catherine and Sophie. This week, we are speaking with Lindsay Croswell. Lindsay has worked across various industries throughout her career and is now Head of External Relations at EBI, one of the many companies that sit with Sanger on the Welcome Genome campus. It was really interesting to talk about such a different aspect of working in science. Lindsay also reflected on how things have changed for women in the workplace over the years. We tend to focus on the present when pushing for equality and how much there is still to do, but it was lovely to think about how far we've come. If you're interested in learning more about Emble EBI, how they adapted to the pandemic and their work on public engagement and EDI, then this is the episode for you. agreeing to talk to us today. Thank you, um, Sophie. You're definitely, uh, we've talked to a lot of scientists so far and not so much people in your sort of role. Oh, um, yes. I'm not one of them. You're not one of them. I'm no. one of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm Lindsay Crosswell and I am Head of External Relations at Emberley BI and that's something I've been doing there now for 10 years. Um, and yes, uh, it's a complex organization. So EMBL EBI is one of uh, the sites of EMBL, the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, which is distributed across um, six countries. It's headquartered in Heidelberg in Germany, and it has another site in Hamburg and one in Grenoble, one in Rome, um, one in Barcelona, and one in Cambridge. And it's the one in Cambridge that I work at. And each of those sites of EMBL has a specialism a scientific specialism and the specialism of Embel EBI as the name implies the European Bioinformatics Institute is bioinformatics and that's become uh, an incredible growth area over the past um, decade or so which means that now although there are 2,000 people across Embel's six sites the biggest concentration of those people is in two places one at the headquarters in Heidelberg and the other one at the European Bioinformatics Institute. So it's 25 years old as an organisation. EMBL is 40 more years old, but uh, so uh, EBI is newer. And it, it benefits from this fantastic co-location, as you described, on the Genome Campus with adjacent to the Sanger Institute, one of its big uh, clients, in inverted commas, a big generator of data. And um, alongside those other... Uh, businesses which go to make the genome campus the largest concentration of expertise in genomics in the world I believe which is incredible growth yeah thank you that was really helpful actually I didn't know all of that um so you're head of external relations so I presume there's a lot of external relations especially going across different countries do you manage relations between different EMBL sites or just with other organizations yeah so that as you rightly say, what I didn't point out earlier on is that EMBL is a um, an unusual organisation because it's uh, a member state organisation. It's a European intergovernment organisation in the same way as CERN and the European Space Agency and the European Southern Observatory. And it's the only one of those organisations that uh, works in the area of the life sciences. And it's funded by its 27 member states, which um, are mainly European countries and they almost map on to the members of the um, European Union, but there's some unusual ones in there that 
um, arguably aren't European, including Israel and uh, Norway, uh, which of course isn't, isn't a member of the Euro- European Union. So it's yeah. um, it's funded by the, these uh, contributions from these 27 member states. So when you're working with all those different countries, uh, you need to make sure you really engage very thoroughly with those countries at the level of their funders and policymakers so that the members of this intergovernment organisation get maximum benefit out of their contributions towards that. So I guess this is uh, this is the, the heart of the role, really. It's working to build and maintain those relationships that are so important, uh, not only for EMBL, but for those member states themselves to maximise the benefit of the organisation. So in my mind, that means trying to make sure that um, analysis done uh, is relevant to all member states or uh, is equally represented? Is that close? So um, that's part of it. It's making sure that the um, member states get what they need out of the organisation so that their science can be served because um, some of the sites that I described to you have core infrastructure that's available to the member states, including synchrotrons in Grenoble and Hamburg. And it's about making sure that there's equitable access for member states to those um, research facilities and also making sure that the fundamental research that that happens at EMBL's sites uh, corresponds to the needs of of its member states and, of course, to uh, Europe and to solving all these grand challenges that we have to solve together. So we need to keep up a dialogue with our member states regularly to to ensure that we're doing that and also to build these vital collaborations because everything we do in in the in the realm of science is entirely collaborative so we totally depend on 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 building these excellent scientific collaborations okay um so in your day what does that actually look like as you go through your day and you're working well i mean it, there is certainly no no standard day I'm sure lots of people that you interview tell you that you know it's incredibly yeah. it's incredibly varied. Um, I mean, I think the mission of Embel drives what we do, and that mission is to include serving our member states across Europe. And so we're responding to their needs. We're meeting with um, lots of scientific delegations and delegations from ministries. And recently, in the past maybe five years, that's been very focused for EBI on helping member states embed their own national genomic Mm. uh, personalised medicine plans. Now, the UK, where our site is located, we're we're not a UK entity, but the UK is very advanced in this area. And we've had lots of um, visits from um, member states wanting to see how this has been done so successfully in the UK and looking to model a sort of genome campus style setup in their own countries to deliver their personalised medicine. And that's very much the role of EMBL. We, we are a facilitator and we're here as a service to be exploited by our members to help them. So I guess, you know, if you ask what that means day to day, that means um, liaising with uh, counterparts in other academic institutes to... Uh, arrange workshops, for example, to see um, 
how we can share this knowledge much more widely across Europe, particularly this knowledge that's been developed so well at Ember EBI and in the UK. Uh, and that was a big thrust of what we were doing over the over the past several years, uh, really helping some of these early adopters to personalised medicine to to embed that. And I think in particular of France, uh, they have their Plan France Genomique 2025, and they're going in that direction. And, um, you know, they're looking for all the support they can get to work out how to do this in their country within the confines of their own um, national medical system. So that's where we step in and help. So I see myself as a, a facilitator who who helps our scientists, our directors and our leadership to carry through these initiatives to bring these entities together. So I'm um, I, I'm the enabler, really, rather than... <laughs> I like that. Um, do you mind if we step back a moment? So it's so nine years ago or so you were hired to do public relations. And how did you end up getting there from what you were doing previously? And what were you doing previously? Yes. So um, I was thinking about this when I was reflecting on what we might be talking about and how I came to this unusual, unique place actually in the world. And um, the journey, the, the common thread that runs through the sort of career journey is uh, working with working with people and working in a sort of people-centred uh, environment. Uh, and when I look back, um, I see that that happened in my career about about twenty years ago. Maybe not deliberately, but I guess we all sort of rise up and play to our to our strengths. Um, yeah. I've always enjoyed uh, communicating and talking to people, so I guess that was something where it seemed very natural for me to be. And I'd worked in a number of um, international organisations, including uh, BP, and also at a, a think tank, Chatham House, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and it be, it became clear that my career was definitely going in the direction of, um, let's call it international relations. Yeah. Um, but the strange route that brought me to um, Emberley BI, I, I'd never been, I never thought I'd been particularly interested in science. I now can't <laughs> believe that I'd sort of eliminated that from my life as um, something <laughs> that could be interesting because it's it's obviously totally fascinating, but. Um, at the start of the millennium in the early 2000s, I had a, a, a stint of four years working at a, a British public school as their director of development, which was a fundraising role. And this called for me to find £15 million for them to build a science centre. Wow. And suddenly I found myself involved in, you know, selling the story of the <laughs> of how vital science and the arts were two people who were potential donors to this project and um, eventually this wonderful building called SciTech was was built at this school and um, then the big recession came and nobody had any money to give to fundraising anymore so that uh, that died and yeah I found myself looking for somewhere where I could use this sort of interest in science and this communication and um, and I ended up uh, yeah, meeting Janet Thornton and being interviewed for this job, and that's where I've been ever since. And of course, now I'm completely alive to the brilliance of working with science, and can't believe I didn't do this earlier because it's <laughs> honestly fascinating, even if you only understand a tiny part of it. And yeah. um, it's very rewarding to feel that you can play, however small a part, in this giant machine of science that just makes such a difference for mankind. Yeah. So it's very gratifying. 
So you studied French, is that right? I did, yes. I studied French. I went to a girls' school where languages were very valued and everyone had to do two. Um, and I did I did three and Latin, if, wow. if Latin can be a language. And then with my family, we used to go on holiday to France a lot and it seemed like a great thing to do to, to study French. So um, that's what I did. But that's funny, was... that seems quite apt for, or quite apt, sorry, for what you've ended up doing. Like yes, going and into actually, communications. Um, it is apt. And, and to be working in a an organisation, you know, the language, the working language of which is English, but where so many other languages are spoken, it, you know, it's great to have another language. And I've had lots of opportunity to use that because I've... Um, Worked a lot in France in this particular job. I, I think I mentioned earlier on that, you know, we have a lot of collaboration with France as well as all the other member states. But yeah, to be, have a chance to put this into action is is great. So you've done quite a lot of work with public engagement, especially when you were in your communications role. Was this meant to be a big part of your role or was that something that you drove yourself? Well, you'll, you'll know yourselves that um, in science, none of these roles are fixed and they're, they're really, they're what you make mm. them. And... no one puts limits on you at EBI and if you join in one role and you show an interest in something else um, you can pretty much own that (laughs) so so having sort of embedded comms and made that a thing that um, everybody grew to appreciate particularly scientists who of course they love their science to be communicated effectively so it didn't take long to win people around to that and of course, then as EBI was growing, all these other things come to the fore that need somebody to do them. Um, one of which is equality and diversity, and we can come back to that. And another is public engagement, because of course we need to be communicating our science um, to other audiences, including younger people. Um, and there was no formal mechanism for this. And in fact, um, the Sanger Institute through their Connecting Science programme were, I suppose, doing this on behalf of the whole campus. But I think we felt we wanted to um, have an input to that. And yeah. um, I I lobbied heavily to have a, a role for that. And actually, Bryony Jackson, who you mentioned, got that role and has been instrumental in building that up for us. So um, it's so fantastic to have our own public engagement activity and our, our staff are now very involved in this and actively look for opportunities to go and tell people about their science and and Bryony enables that so um, that was one area where I decided to expand my responsibilities and the other one was um, equality and diversity where um, it became obvious that we needed to take um, some action to have um, a staff member in post and to do more than just join in the great activities of the campus equality and diversity programs and to have our own programs. Um, So again, I lobbied and um, nobody can argue with the good sense of needing somebody to do that. So we now have an equality and diversity officer at EBI and EMBL itself has now opened an office of equality and diversity. Mm. Um, So we're really moving and actually there were pivotal, pivotal points that changed everything. Um, um, when the organisation starts to be challenged by its staff about what it's going to do in relation to um, global initiatives like Black Lives Mm -hmm. Matter and the Me Too movement, um, it wakes everybody up. And we realised we had to do something serious about that. So 
we're going down that path. We've got some catching up to do, but um, it's great that it's now appropriately staffed. Yeah. So within public engagement, do you um, work mostly with children or adults or what? So yeah. we've we've done all sorts of things. I mean, we've worked with um, adults at um, Cambridge Science Festival, where obviously we're talking to an audience that's a little bit like ourselves. It's a bit like talking into an echo chamber because these are educated uh, interested, engaged, and usually quite intellectual audiences. I mean, where where we find something amazing is when we start to move into the what we call you know harder to reach areas, and um, we had uh, a big push in you know in the shopping centre in Peterborough where we brought scientists from uh, Sanger, LMB, and EBI to talk about their science and do practical experiments. And this, for many of the people that came to to, to uh, take part in in these activities was an absolute first they said we never see this sort of thing here this is fantastic we're so grateful to you for coming um you know does it cost anything um all the sorts of things that maybe a cambridge audience might take for yeah. granted um yeah. so so that that felt very special and i think we're trying to put a lot more effort into reaching people that don't often get this kind of activity on their doorstep. Do you think that's become easier with COVID or harder? Oh, I think without a doubt it, it's it's harder. You know, if you have an in-person event, you publicise it and, you know, people will turn up and then people will casually walk past you weren't expecting to see it in their shopping centre, for mm-hmm. example. Whereas um, it, it, I think it took a while to... Um, readjust for covid and get those activities um formulated in a way that they could be delivered virtually so it's definitely harder how else did your role change ah well my role changed profoundly yeah it changed profoundly um for a start i came home from the office on the 16th of march having had a discussion with my director you and bernie who at the time, I was unaware, but it was on Sage. Uh, and I mm-hmm. said to you, and how long is it going to be? And he said, it's going to be a long time, Lindsay. Oh, so um, I started packing up a crate and um, <laughs> colleagues were saying, what are you doing? We'll be back in three weeks. And I said, oh. Ewan says it's going to be a long time. Um, <laughs> and Ewan, it turns out, was right. Yeah, um, yeah. It's been a long time. So I came back and started working from home, which is the first time I have worked from home in my 38-year career. And we were dealing with an unfolding, um, by when I say we, I mean this business continuity team that sprung into action at EBI, with this new and unfolding and unprecedented, let's call it a crisis, and learning how to navigate through this and trying to find solutions for staff, which of course now it all seems in the dim distant past, but don't forget, you know, many people had no means to work from home, they had no equipment, they had nowhere to sit, and then we were all learning how we could continue to deliver um, our day-to-day work in this new way. Uh, we've done an amazing job, all of us, anyone that's worked from home and somehow managed to carry on has has just done, done brilliantly. And now we're in another phase of this. Um, so my job now is to work with my colleagues on this business continuity team to consider all the granular detail about what it means to come back into this office. Um, and it's only when you're... Uh, working very closely with it 
as we all are, that you realise the incredible granularity. So behind sitting behind each thing are a thousand sub points. So um, sitting behind the bus journey to work is, you know, is the airflow on the bus okay? Will we be, uh, will you be picking up at every bus stop? Uh, how will we book this? Will there be spaces in between the seats? Um, and that's just one of a myriad considerations and because we're scientists working with scientists with it you know they they want every piece of conceivable data to enable enable this to happen so it's a huge body of work that everybody's been doing on top of their normal day jobs has there been any part of this that you've not the pandemic I guess but like of this new role that you've enjoyed I mean the teamwork is just it's sort of second to none it's it's the next level of teamwork you know when you're in a crisis and you're trying to do things together um that's when the team dynamic comes into its own and we have wonderful colleagues that have just given everything to this um often to the detriment of their own family and personal Mm. lives um so Certainly it's unforgettable in, you know, in many ways. I mean, no one wanted this to happen. It's happened. But we will look back and say that, um, yeah, we certainly gave everything to this to this effort, all of us. I can imagine that a large part of this work would have a mental health aspect running through it. Was this something that you also de- dealt with um, in this committee? Um, I guess some people are kind of gagging to get back to work and then some people are going to really struggle with the transition. Yeah, it's abs- I mean, mental health was absolutely paramount. It was more important than anything because if you don't have sound mental health, nothing else can happen. And, you know, we have had colleagues that have suffered a huge amount for many reasons, not least of which they're living outside of their country of origin, uh, they may be living in um, in isolation or they may be living in the opposite of isolation, which is multi-occupancy housing where they're struggling to, to work. I mean, everything had the thread of support for mental health running through it. So it was completely key to everything. And it, and it carries on because the return to the workplace, as you say, is very different for people depending on their individual circumstances. And we're really mindful of that. And we don't take it lightly and think that everyone can just jump back in without without a blip. So, yeah, we continue to offer all that support. And I think we'll have to keep morphing and changing that support to, to meet the requirements of staff. Yeah, it's interesting, right, because mental health is something that's obviously always important, but it feels as if this whole situation's really exacerbated it. Do you think that some of the attention to mental health will carry over beyond the pandemic? Um, I think almost inevitably, I mean, I see it leaching into the work we do um, on equality and diversity. I mean, equality and diversity used to just be about binary gender, and it's now about so much more. Um, And we, you you know, we're much more mindful of our colleagues struggling with issues around neurodiversity. And surveys we've undertaken reveal that, you know, we have a quite a considerable percentage of staff who who identify as neurodiverse um i think the more we explore this much more mindful we become um of strategies to help people cope and to help staff that uh, perhaps aren't used to thinking about other people's needs in quite the same way so this will be will be carried on and um 
actually, if that's one good thing that comes out of, of COVID, it's raised our awareness of all of these challenges for so many people. Yeah. Do you mind, um, this might be a bit odd, but do you mind describe, like explaining what neurodiverse is? I think it's quite a mm. new term that a lot of people might not have heard yet. Yeah, of course. Sorry, I sort of bandy it about like everybody knows. But um, so neurodiversity really is, um, I mean, it's a descriptor that people apply to themselves where they identify as having, I guess, some difference from the norm, whatever the norm is, um, in the way that their brain functions. And I suppose one of the most common forms of neurodiversity that we see um, and, and encounter, particularly in science, is um, uh, the spectrum of autism um, and frequently in our area, this manifests as maybe Asperger's. And, and, and it brings about um, difficulties with social interaction for people and all of those anxieties that, that we've talked about, about being um, maybe thrust back into this environment with other people in a, in, in a challenging work environment. So, yes, yeah, so neurodiverse is where you personally identify as um, having a, um, a, a brain that's wired in perhaps a slightly different way to other people, but um, it's it's in no way a, a pejorative. You know, I know lots and lots of people who are neurodiverse and uh, yeah. I think it's to be celebrated. Yeah, I think it's a great term. I hadn't heard it until well, I think last year at some point. Yeah, I think also turning it away from like a disability as well I think a lot of the time like I'm dyslexic and a lot of the times when you're you're applying for jobs and stuff this is box to tick and I'm like well I feel like it's benefited me almost so like neurodiverse is a much better kind of term for it and, and it's probably nice for you to know that you're um, in very esteemed company uh, <laughs> with dyslexia because uh, recently some of our leaders have, have um uh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, spoken about this. Um, Martin Doherty, you and Bernie have spoken about their own challenges with dyslexia. So probably feels good to be in such good company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, something else I was wondering about. So I saw that you were awarded the um, Women's Day Best Practice Award last year. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what kind of led to that and how you felt about getting that award. Ah, well, um, obviously I felt great about it. I mean, who doesn't like getting an award Uh, and having their contribution recognised? But I think I felt particularly pleased about it because it was a sort of recognition of actually about a decade's worth of work because I started getting involved um, on the Genome Campus with the Campus Equality and Diversity Programme, which was then called Sex in Science back in the days when... um, binary gender was the the driver for for um equality and women in science was the was the thrust now of course as we know that that's moved on a bit and i um worked in the early days with ellie zagini who she she left sanger a couple of years ago and now leads um a scientific institute in germany but she was the 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 person that kicked all this off and janet thornton asked me to get involved on behalf of, of ebi and um yeah those were the origins of of what we now know as the Campus Equality in Science uh, group. And I've had the privilege of chairing that for the past um, two or three years now. And it's, um, I guess the award was possibly in recognition of that. Um, But it's, you know, it's a pleasure to do that. And more of a pleasure to see how it's grown and developed over the years and how it's become much more mainstream. And many of my colleagues that were 
perhaps cynical about this um, now really understand the importance and, and more than that, embrace it and go and look for support um, to include to include aspects of this in in their work. So, um, yeah, so it's very nice to get an award. That's amazing. Did um, so getting involved with this and all of the inclusivity work that you do. Um, were there any specific moments or specific things that made you really feel you had to get involved with this? Well, of course, it begins, I think a lot of people get involved in um, this sort of work because they have their own um, personal cross to bear, maybe. And I think yeah. for, for me, you know, it, it, it did resonate with me that we needed to um, have better working conditions for female scientists and get many more of these female scientists up the leaky pipeline to uh, senior roles and professorships. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I recognise that struggle um, from my own career of having a voice and being recognised as um, a minority, you know, a woman in a man's world. So I've worked in investment banking, I've worked in the oil business, and I've worked in a British public school, formerly been a boys' school. And these are deeply entrenched male environments where in the era that I'm talking about, you know, the 80s, 90s and the early noughties, you know, was it was a, it was difficult to be a woman in these places and you had to be vocal. Um, so I think that's that was what got me into it, this desire to sort of try and make a difference for the next generation. Um, and I really want to do that because, you know, I have two daughters of, of my own and I want this to be as good as it can be for them in their careers. Yeah. In those more male-dominated roles that you had, um, how, I guess more specifically, if you don't mind, like how did that feel or how was that? I can't really imagine working in oil, say, as a woman then. Yeah, you, you, you're not really aware of it when you're in it. It's only when you look back, particularly now with the Me Too movement, and you look back and think, I literally cannot believe that people did these things uh, in the workplace and it was considered normal. Um, you know, just sort of the blatant sexism of the wolf whistle from the trading floor desk and, um, you know, being the one that's expected to pour the tea and coffee because you're a female mm. and not really being listened to properly and definitely being uh, the minority in terms of number around a table. Um, I mean, that changes, maybe it's because I was younger, but that, you know, that that's changed profoundly um, for me over the past 10 years, maybe because I became more senior or maybe because society changed or a combination of both of those things. But yeah, um, I think some of those things are, would be deemed truly unacceptable now mm. in most situations, although obviously they still happen. I, I also instances. feel as a, as a person that's, um, you know, worked full time while with my husband raising two, uh, two children, you know, I, I want this to be easier than it used to be for people, mm -hmm. if at all possible. I mean, it wasn't the norm to request to work uh, part time or even four out of five days a week. This was frowned on. I can remember coming back to the workplace um, and I was on secondment from BP to Chatham House. And I asked after the birth of my second daughter to um, reduce my working week to from five days to four days. And 
there was a little bit of thinking and then the director of the institute said no that he couldn't support that that he needed me in the office and now of course this sounds ridiculous yeah, doesn't it really. i mean how could you possibly um decline that but decline it he did um, and you know you push on and you put up with it but now i'm really delighted that that would be unthinkable and that nobody yeah. w- would would do that did you have any did you have any strong female role models before janet or was janet the first one well i think in a in a strange way, my my mother was a strong female role model for her era. So neither of my parents went to university, but they were absolutely thrilled that both of their daughters did and were the first people in the family to go to university. Uh, my sister before me and then me in the early 80s. And they were completely supportive of that. I'm not sure they knew what it meant, but they just knew it was a good thing and that we should do it. Yeah. But my mother worked full time, which was very unusual in the 70s. Um, and most of my friends' mums were at home and um, that was the kind of expectation. So um, seeing my mother work and make a go of it um, was was great. So she was an influence on me and she always encouraged and supported um, my sister and I. And we both had, um, you know, we both had great careers as a result of that early support. So there was that. And then um, I I had a very... It's interesting that, uh, you know, these mentors turn out to be female. Um, My boss at BP for a number of years, Angela Strank, was another um, female influence. She's gone on to be uh, a director of BP. She's a hugely successful scientist in her own right. She's head of research and development at, at BP. And she was my boss for many years. And actually seeing her manage two children at the time when I only had one and seeing that she could do it and travel all over the world um, was it was inspiring. And it's 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 proof that that it can be done. And kind of that's what you need. You need to look at people. And I hope my own daughters look at me and think, well, you know, mum did it so we can. So, yeah, that's all we can hope. (laughs) I hope they do. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Um, all right. So looking back on your career, what would you say is your proudest achievement? Yeah. So I think, I think it's an extension of of what I was saying earlier. This, um, I do feel proud that I've managed to be a mother of two children, be a wife and have a great career that's taken me all over the world and is in such a, I mean, I'm hugely proud of the genome campus and of Embel and Embel EBI. I mean, it's it's a delight to be able to tell people that you, you do this, um, yeah. this strange job you do in this scientific environment. And people are always totally awed by the genome and anything to do with the genome camp. <laughs> I guess if um, we carry on with public engagement and make science really accessible, then people won't be as impressed when we say we work <laughs> in these environments anymore. <laughs> I guess that's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah, there'll be many, many more people doing it, and the mystique will go out of it, maybe. But um, but I we know. need lots of, uh, of brilliant, enthusiastic young people because, as you know, this is you know this yeah. is the future. This is a growth area. Um, bioinformatics has seen enormous growth um, over the past decade, and this is just going to carry on as everything becomes digitized and personalized medicine is is the future so it can only grow so it's nice to be to have been in on the ground floor if you like and watch this yeah definitely. and I'm proud of where I work and I'm I'm proud that I've stuck to this um for all these years 
and kind of made it through despite the um you know some of the challenges for women that existed as i said to you in the in the 80s and 90s yeah yeah it sounds like you're hopefully working towards making it even better i hope so come after you i hope so i can already see that it's you know it's it's got vastly working life has got vastly better um for women um i think the burden that men carry uh and the way they share that has has changed considerably. The expectations on men as as partners, or or indeed partners as partners, to help support each other through working life has, yeah, really, really improved. Yeah, I guess as a final question. So, I mean, this isn't the end of your career. I was wondering what your next big goal would be. Well, it is. The, it might be the twilight of my career. I mean. It's probably not the end of it, but I think it could realistically be the twilight, not least of all because um, Emble has a very unusual structure that I should probably tell you about here, and that is that you can't stay forever at Emble. You can only stay for three three-year contracts, and then you are released wow. into the outside world. Oh, and um, I did not know, know that. That makes um, me think of that movie. <laughs> so, sorry, that makes me think of that movie Soul. Have any either of you seen it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I don't know that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's like that. Okay. So you get you get freed up. Well, actually, the, the rationale behind this is driven by the science. So if you imagine you bring in an early career stage um, scientist and you train them up and they develop all these wonderful skills in this environment that is Emble, and then you free them up um, to go and be a PI maybe in their own country or in another country. So you're all the time growing this science base. And that's actually what Emble's all about. It's about the training um, of young scientists. So even those of us who aren't scientists are subject to this nine-year rule. So um, I reached my nine years last year and a strange thing happened called COVID. They couldn't they let, couldn't let go. me go because COVID <laughs> happened. And actually, um, people people <laughs> were needed to uh, man the lifeboats. So um, I'm busy manning the lifeboats, but but it does have a back end to it. But um, I sort of sincerely hope that won't be the end of my uh, career. I, I'm excited about what, what might lie ahead. And I, I don't know what that would be. But um, I certainly enjoy helping uh, younger people with their... Um, job applications and CVs and I like talking to people about you know where they're going because I have a lot of colleagues that back in the day when I used to work in an office um you know they would come and knock on the door and say in 18 months time I'm leaving Emble can I have a chat with you about what do you think to this idea or that idea Mm -hmm. and actually Mm -hmm. it's incredibly gratifying uh helping people even in that very informal mentorship way you know their colleagues their friends we're just chatting about the future but I have found that to be very, very rewarding. And actually, I like helping mm-hmm. uh, young adults with their career advice and checking their cover letters and looking at their CVs. And, you know, I get lots of people asking me to do that. And I really, I really enjoy that. So, um, you know, who knows? That might be something I'll, yeah, something I'll enjoy doing um, in, in the yeah. future. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm excited to see what your next thing Thank is. Thank you, me then. too. Once you start manning a lifeboat. <laughs> well, we think the lifeboats are probably going to be wound back in by um, by September. And we have to hope, free, um, free right. up the uh, business continuity committee to wait for the next crisis because, you know, this is hopefully a thing that we can put a lid on and bring an end to. And then, you know, let's hope there won't be another crisis coming behind. But, you know, this 
this committee needs to stand ready to deal with the, the next thing that comes along. Lindsay, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you both. and um, Learned a lot. Well, that's great. Yeah, that was I'm so glad interesting. you learned a lot. And uh, I really enjoyed it as well. So thank you both very much. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Decoding Life podcast. We'll be releasing our next episode in a couple of weeks. If you enjoyed this one, why not follow us on Instagram at Decoding Life Podcast or Twitter at Decoding Life Pod to see what our next episode will be about. Make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of the next time we released an episode. We would like to thank the public engagement team at the Welcome Sanger Institute for their help and funding of this project. In particular, Alexandra Canette Font and Dr. Elena Pants for their guidance and advice through the entire process. We would also like to thank Piv Gopalasingam for thoroughly researching our guests prior to interviews, as well as Rick Keens for our beautiful logo. Thank you.